Welcome to the June 2020 Rehab Cast. So we've had a bit of an interlude since I last hosted an edition of the archives of PM&R's Rehab Cast in February of this year. I do hope that you and your families are all well and that your respective medical centers are all doing as well as can be expected in these circumstances. The planet and scientific publishing has been rapidly transformed by the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, and the archives is right along there with it, publishing one of the first papers discussing the likely impact of COVID on the rehabilitation world. In this edition, you'll hear from journal editors Helen Honig and Gerald Coe about what they think they got right and wrong in their March special communication about the oncoming virus. As of this recording, PubMed already returns an astounding 18,399 results for COVID. The preprint servers MedRxiv and BioRxiv collectively return another 4,788 papers. A search for COVID and rehabilitation on PubMed already returns 289 results, a testament to the major functional toll this virus can take on the human body. Much of the COVID-related research is freely accessible, thanks to much of the scientific journal publishing industry agreeing to respond to this worldwide state of emergency with a free flow of information. That means you can click straight through to the full article, regardless of whether you or your library has an account. In the journal Neurology, you can read about how over 57% of hospitalized COVID patients display neurological symptoms, many of those with rehabilitation implications. The article with first author Carlos Manuel Romer Sanchez is based on a large Spanish hospital registry. There are now six articles in the literature discussing a potential therapeutic role of a favorite drug in rehabilitation, amantadine. I have personally heard one anecdotal report from a colleague who observed that when COVID spread in their rehab hospital, none of the patients on amantadine got it while the others did. An intriguing retrospective study from Poland looked at 22 patients, all with either MS, Parkinson's, or cognitive impairment, with confirmed COVID who were taking amantadine or memantine. None of the patients, ostensibly a high-risk group, became symptomatic with their COVID infection or experienced a neurological decline. A paper in the journal Medical Hypothesis looks at the antiviral properties of the drug in early stages of viral replication. The authors argue that amantadine could enter the channel formed by the E protein of the coronavirus, breaking into the hydrogen bridges formed with water in the same way that it does with the viral protein of the influenza virus. Now, there are dozens and dozens of potential prophylactic and treating agents under investigation, and of course, amantadine may turn out to be a sideshow like so many others. But this is certainly an avenue of special interest to the rehabilitation community, given our familiarity with this particular drug. Also in this edition, we'll gasp, uh, look at the pages of another competing rehabilitation journal, the American Journal of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation, which has published a handy guide to the many clinical manifestations of COVID for the rehabilitation clinician. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment, and the Archives podcast is happy to highlight good work in other journals. And turning back to the archives, we'll spend some time with Joe Giacino, who with colleagues in the ACRM's DOC Special Interest Group has published a raft of minimum competency guidelines for DOC care that sure ought to be of interest to any institution providing or planning to provide care for disordered consciousness persons. 
Now, let's get on with the show. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast, we have two interviewees, uh, both authors of a special communication uh, that came out in March in the archives of PM&R. Both authors are editors of the journal as well. We have Dr. Helen Honig, who is a deputy editor. She is professor of medicine and geriatrics at Duke University. She also practices at the VA Medical Center, where she is uh, lead of rehabilitation and extended care. Also joining us is Dr. Gerald Coe. He is a section editor of the journal, and he is actually clinical director for the uh, Ministry of Health in Singapore, uh, focusing on the future of primary care and healthcare transformation. He is a professor at the National University of Singapore in the School of Public Health. Thanks for both of you joining us on the Rehabcast today. Thank you so much for having us, Ford. Now, your paper that came out in March is one of the leading edge, uh, you know, COVID uh, articles uh, in a, a medical journal related to rehabilitation. It's entitled, How Should the Rehabilitation Community Prepare for COVID, for 2019 uh, COVID? Well, um, at that time, when the paper came out, um, uh, perhaps we had not really uh, seen the explosion of COVID in as many countries around the world as has happened at this point, and certainly not in the United States. It was certainly uh, predicted to be uh, quite a problem. And as you guys write in the paper, uh, not speculating, but certainly using your uh, educated backgrounds on what to expect and how to best prepare and what um, CDC guidance was and perhaps translating that for the rehab population in general, we've we perhaps learned a lot since that time. Uh, let's kind of talk about uh, the the goals of the paper to to begin with, um, and what you guys were seeing at that time. The genesis of of this, I I contacted Gerald because we were just starting to plan how to um, uh, prepare and rehab um, here in the VA for what could be. Um, a lot of COVID um, survivors. I knew that Gerald had been involved in the SARS epidemic um, some years ago. And, you know, with his public health background, I figured he'd be called on in Singapore and that Singapore, being so close to China, might be ahead of us on on mm-hmm. the curve in coping. Um, and Gerald, indeed, was in the midst of... Um, things in Singapore and suggested that we write an editorial. And with that, Gerald, what's what's your side of that equation? (laughs) So, Helen, you're absolutely correct. Um, uh, As you know, uh, the the novel coronavirus 2019 actually was uh, started in China in late December 2019. And actually, by the end of January, Singapore was uh, taken over China as the top country with the uh, uh, sorry, uh, taken over, uh, became the second country with the second highest number of cases after China. Um, so we were also, we were one of the first few countries to experience COVID. And um, yes, I we were actually uh, I was actually involved in, in 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 the fight against COVID in, in locally in, in Singapore. And um, and while I was doing it from the Ministry of Health perspective, it's largely from a policy making perspective, um, and 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 trying to get our, our healthcare system ready for for COVID. But I thought about the rehab fraternity in the in, in the global rehab fraternity, and I, and COVID has is 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 um, has got 
every specialty has got unique perspectives, unique roles and responsibilities, unique um, things they need to do when COVID hits you. So, and so I thought when you reached out to me, Helen, I thought what we really needed was some sort of a quick um, paper, quick summary, a quick readable uh, 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 article that we had uh, people from all over the world could just read and get up to speed quickly on what COVID's about and what they need to do as a rehab, um, as a member of the rehab community to, to, to prepare the departments, the patients themselves for COVID. Well, I think you guys did achieve that. Obviously, we've learned a whole lot uh, medically about uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the intervening couple of months uh, and so, but, but it seems that most all of the guidance that is in this document is certainly still operative, and the primary things uh, relevant to rehab population include that careful use of PPE and cohorting patients and so forth, and certainly some of the, the rehab needs that you outlined or expected in this patient population are, uh, are coming true. Um, is uh, and, and, and so in terms of uh, this, this paper, there is some significant practical advice here uh, for each member of the rehab team and kind of looking at the institution as a whole. Uh, let's just take a look at, at some of these and, and perhaps if you could summarize for us what uh, uh, the recommendations are and perhaps anything that has changed with regards to um, uh, attempts to um, isolate or cohort patients and separate staff and, and facilities, um, what do you feel like is, uh, is best practice? And I'm kind of throwing these questions out to both of you guys. You know, feel free to both uh, chime in and, and converse as you like. Helen, would you like to start first? Sure. I think we're, we're seeing now that there is perhaps no one-size-fits-all answer um, because differing locations have differing volumes of, of uh, patients that are sick with COVID-19 or survive and then surviving, coming from differing settings for, for care. Um, and then facilities differ substantially in their physical facilities and and for some places it may not be feasible to set up two distinct uh, rehab wards. So we we don't think that there is a, at least it's not seeming that there's a, a one-size-fits-all answer, but rather that you have to really look at the population needs in context of your physical facilities. Sure. Um, and uh, to some extent, uh, perhaps uh, the rehab hospital, like all institutions, certainly when uh, SARS-CoV-2 was cresting and everything, and we're looking at uh, almost, you know, kind of care rationing measures, and there was all this talk about, well, who gets ventilators and who doesn't. Uh, when it comes to beds and hospitals, that can be very valuable as something like this is surging in a pandemic. You do have to kind of look at your individual institution, perhaps through a public health lens, rather than just that individual patient, which is really hard for any uh, clinician to do. You have to think about, well, okay, what is the exposure now to everyone in this facility? Does everyone need to be here? Should there be some earlier discharges and so forth? Yeah, one of the questions uh, that you posed to us, Ford, was um, in what way has what we have written in, the, in, the, in our article changed uh, now? Because the article was, came out somewhere online in, in March, and um, now it's May. Um, sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, in in my article, I wrote down when I actually had in table one, I talked about things like uh, the case fatality rate and the total number of cases. 
Um, it, as of 2nd of April, uh, the global number of cases was 900 over 900,000 over cases. But as of today, I just checked the internet on 6 June, uh, which is about two months later, we've got 6.4 million cases around the world. And yeah, so the numbers have really, really gone up exponentially in in this two months. Um, In my paper, because it was based on data that came out from China initially, the case fatality rate, I put it down as if it's within uh, Wuhan, it was actually 3.8%. If it was outside Wuhan, it was 0.2%. But again, looking at the world data now, we have uh, data from all over the world, the case fatality rate is starting to look like it's 5.9%. And um, one of the things I was highlighting in the paper is that uh, COVID is actually more fatal than seasonal influenza because the case fatality rate for seasonal influenza is 0.1%. And now we're dealing with something that is 50 times higher. Uh, and and that's, that, that, that kind of also demonstrates that a lot of times when at the start of a pandemic, there's a lot of things you don't know, but with the benefit of time, um, you, you start to understand this new novel virus better. The other thing that was also interesting was in my paper, in my uh, in the epidemiology section, I, men- I mentioned that asymptomatic transmission of COVID was rare based on what we knew then uh, in February. Mm-hmm. But now we actually know that um, because of epidemiological studies, that asymptomatic transmission is actually very common. And some papers even have said that it's as common as 50 to 70%. And that makes COVID so difficult to manage because patients are disseminating, transmitting the viruses to other people, and they actually are healthy, they actually look normal. And that's been the challenge of COVID. And has huge implications for our rehabilitation environment too, in terms of uh, many of the policies that are, are, are so heartbreaking for families with regards to visitation and so forth. And um, uh, you know, each institution is having to kind of figure out ways to, to help people get as much contact with family as possible while perhaps preventing that asymptomatic spread. It affects us in a number of ways. So traditionally with rehabilitation, we train caregivers. Um, mm. Obviously, that's more difficult if you have a no visitation policy. Um, if you can't have a completely separate COVID ward, then sometimes patients have to get their rehabilitation in the room, which then limits availability of some of the equipment and training settings that we would traditionally use. Um, in this, I think we as a community are having to figure it out uh, uh, perhaps on the fly. Uh, I, I think in figuring it out, there are different levels, you know, so if you're an administrator, you're thinking more at the facility level, the population level, whatever your facility or population might be. As the therapist, mm-hmm. you're at, at the individual level with that, you know, looking that patient in the eye. Um, mm-hmm. Even if you're in an administrative role, you still have to remember that each person, e- each COVID case is a person with their unique needs, their family. Uh, you can't forget that there's an individual behind all of the the numbers. Um, and that, that does make it difficult. Incredibly challenging and sometimes heartbreaking aspects of it. It's, uh, you know, uh, certainly already hard enough to be uh, going through uh, the early phases of perhaps a uh, a new disability and the intensive treatment there necessary and uh, to see this family separation and everything uh, compounded on top of it uh, is uh, is extraordinarily challenging and then certainly uh, and during this most valuable period of time after you know strokes and brain injuries and spinal cord injuries and so forth to see folks not be able to 
perhaps, you know, utilize all that, you know, gym equipment and everything that's necessary and, you know, the, the community rehab and everything that is so, that is so important. Uh, that, that being said, you guys did point out in your paper that um, when it comes to, um, you know, outpatient rehabilitation and so forth, fortunately by this time, uh, you know, we have technologies for tele-rehab and some good evidence that some of it is, is quite useful in certain populations like stroke, right? Um, absolutely. And um, so uh, that some of the work that Gerald and I have done together has um, studied use of telehealth technology for stroke in particular. Um, and we've seen, you know, equivalent um, outcomes. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, mind you, you can't do things exactly the same way. You have to adapt uh, what you're doing to take into account um, the limitations and the benefits of the technology. So in some respects, you know, when you're using teletechnology, you have a better information about the, the environmental context, the home context in which people mm-hmm. are having to function versus when the patient is coming into the clinic. So that's an advantage. A disadvantage is, you know, things like doing manual muscle testing. Um, you may have to ask patients to um, to look at their gait. You want to may need to have them walk to and fro, and then walk sideways in front of the camera. So we we sure. have to adapt. But um, here we are. We have really um, in the VA extensively now moved to using teletechnology to help meet the needs of patients um, uh, during this period when we want to protect our most vulnerable from coming into the hospital, coming into the clinic. When I reflect on, infl- I'm largely inpatient, and when I reflect on changes to my practice um, that, I'm, that I'm seeing during this period, um, one thing that I might carry w- forward with me a bit in terms of, you know, uh, seeing inpatients and inpatient rounds and so forth, obviously I'm used to having families right there in the room and talking with them uh, also, and with that not being the case, we're doing telephone updates. Uh, and I'm finding, interestingly, in some cases, we're going to say this with, with all, but I feel like I'm actually having more information exchange, more in-depth conversation and processing with families uh, over the phone rather than perhaps an impromptu uh, short casual chat in the room. These uh, conversations on the telephone seem to be a little bit more meaty, and each one is kind of like a mini medical conference helping the family process the events from that week uh, on to the next and and so forth. I'm finding that quite interesting. I think we're going to find a lot of benefits um, and, you know, learning as we as we go forward. And it might be a year from now, we're still using some combination of of telehealth technology and in-person care. Um, This is really forcing us to reexamine what we do and how we do it. Gerald, how are things in Singapore? Again, you're further along in this curve than we are for the post-acute care of uh, COVID survivors, but also delivery of of rehabilitation in the COVID coronavirus context. Coronavirus is going to be with us for a while. Yes. So, um, uh, Singapore has actually done a lot in the field of telerehabilitation. It has actually been one of our uh, key use cases for, for our Ministry of Health. 
uh, to act, to to um, make telehealth more available and more accessible to, to Singaporeans. Um, but uh, because of the COVID situation, a lot of the tele we have we've done has been simply um, asking people to download an app whereby they can actually see the various different exercises and through phone calls. Uh, we, uh, the therapists have been actually t advising patients to, to to say, okay, you look at this particular exercise on this particular page and list of these exercises, they're, they're, they prescribe them through the app, um, but it doesn't have the added benefit of uh, video conferencing uh, that normally comes with, uh, with telerehabilitation because the video conferencing um, facility in Singapore is not actually reached into the community. It's largely being from healthcare institution to healthcare institution, but not healthcare institution to patient's home. So that's another barrier in terms of daily health that we, we need to, to, to overcome. Well, Gerald, I have to ask you a follow-up question about that, uh, just out of curiosity. Sure. Uh, you're talking about infrastructure of the internet in Singapore. I, I considered uh, Singapore to, to, have, to be quite advanced in that regard. Oh, it's not the limitation. Is not the the internet. I think the inter, uh, the, the the limitation is actually funding. So uh, yeah, in order for in order to 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 make uh, video conferencing uh, um, because data security is 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 uh, very important in Singapore and. and um, if you want to use a video, a form of video conferencing that is data secure to our to 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 our to our government standard, uh, it ends the patient actually ends up paying a lot for it. Uh, so we have and because we haven't reached in a, in my opinion a, a critical mass of users that then we will achieve economies of scale to bring down the price. Singapore is is, is much smaller than 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 the US. We've only got five million people, so uh, we don't really enjoy the economies of scale that perhaps the US enjoys. Yeah, so that's something we need to work on. But even within the U.S., the ability to do video conferencing for telehealth varies considerably yeah. by healthcare system. So in the VA, we've invested a lot of money to develop secure video conferencing, um, partly because we have so many rural dwelling veterans. Um, and we now have um, widespread availability of live two-way video conferencing. And we will soon be releasing um, uh, the software that will allow patients to be able to securely upload still images and uh, and uh, video clips on request from their their provider using uh, any mobile device uh, but outside the VA that that facility even in the US is not necessarily available to do it securely now I, I know for example at Duke um, we I, I, I have had telephone, conferences with my physician about my own medical needs. Um, uh, and we are able to upload a picture through the Duke Secure website, but the video conferencing is not yet available. I think it really is system by system to be able to be HIPAA compliant. Sure. I'll throw out to folks there that uh, I've used the Doximity video chat app on a few occasions and have found it very useful. The other thing with all of that, and, and this is a, a maybe moving just a bit off topic, but not totally, um, there's a complex web of regulations that have to be considered when using telehealth. What state are you licensed in? What institution do you, are you credentialed in? Um, as as physicians and, and as health as any kind of healthcare provider, it's it's important to look at and understand uh, your local regulations um, uh, for use of telehealth. 
We had a discharged patient to a neighboring state and, and discovered there were special rules with regards to the psychology follow-up we really needed on that patient and had to get special dispensation from that state's um, board governing psychology so that our psychologists could do telehealth with them. Yep. Mm. Well, guys, um, I think that, uh, uh, again, I would encourage the, the readers, obviously, the journal to go check out this paper. Uh, and increasingly, I expect we're going to be seeing a lot more um, uh, COVID-related rehabilitation articles uh, in this journal. And I was uh, perhaps not too surprised to learn uh, if you go to PubMed and uh, type in COVID and rehabilitation at this point, there are already hundreds of papers. Of course, there are tens of thousands with regards to uh, COVID in, in general. Um, it uh, is uh, certainly a feather in the cap of the world medical research community that uh, everyone has turned uh, laser-focused uh, on this pandemic as they should so rapidly, and many journals are um, uh, doing their part. Um, um, I, and I suppose with both of you being editors uh, of the archive, you can speak to that uh, aspect uh, for us in just a moment and, and with the impact that uh, this pandemic has had on the journal publishing industry. Um, yes. Yeah, so one thing I, I would mention, um, we do have a call for papers um, from the journal on um, COVID rehabilitation, COVID-related publications, um, anything from case reports to cohort studies to, um, uh, you know, we, we prefer a little bit of data there, but, you know, we really want to uh, be able to get um, information out to our readers um, on um, uh, rehabilitation practices for COVID. I think we are already, we are in a very rapid learning situation um, as we learn more about the, the complications uh, that occur in patients who have coronavirus um, and which of those complications uh, generate needs for rehabilitation. Um, our, our initial editorial was uh, we didn't yet have the data to understand uh, fully what the, the post-acute particularly needs are, but even the acute um, uh, rehabilitation-specific needs. So there's a very rapid learning curve for us, and, and Archive certainly wants to be at the forefront of getting that information out to the rehabilitation community. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank both of you guys for uh, taking the time to uh, join us today, and um, I think that uh, the readers of uh, the journal uh, and everyone in the medical community uh, is, uh, is very interested in the implications of this on everyone's practice and what it means for our patients and, and all trying to do the best in this uh, uh, tumultuous period in world history. Um, so thank you to, uh, today, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll be having further conversations uh, about the situation as it advances. Thank you so much, Ford. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Marie-Lisa Lopez. She is an assistant professor at UT Southwestern PM&R. Uh, Dr. Lopez and her colleagues have uh, published the COVID-19 Guide for the Rehabilitation Clinician on a review of the non-pulmonary manifestations and complications, some of which, of course, may be the most rehab-relevant things that uh, we will see uh, in this pandemic. Dr. Lopez, thanks for joining us in the RehabCast. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, the RehabCast, of course, is the podcast of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. This paper is not 
in the archives, but I think it's highly relevant for archives listeners to uh, hear about uh, as well and uh, certainly recognize that people can uh, read other medical journals as well. In fact, we encourage it. Uh, and this is uh, in the AJPMNR, um, uh, of which there is a series of COVID-related uh, rehab articles, of which uh, yours is one. I, th- I think we should uh, can perhaps find it a particularly useful one. Uh, you've uh, reviewed uh, quite a lot of the emerging literature here, as I as I see it. You know, there's already tens of thousands of articles um, uh, about COVID out there, as, as well there should be, uh, given this uh, global pandemic uh, that that looks like uh, quite a Herculean uh, task you achieved there. How how long did it take? <laughs> well, we were actually. Um doing some work um, off-site in our department for, you know, decreased exposure and such. So I had a little bit more time than usually. So I think uh, with the literature search, it took about, um, I don't know, like three days or so. Uh And uh, I was uh, compiling and and writing the information as I went through the search. In terms of all all sorts of interesting headlines have been coming out about odd cases here and there to some of some cases perhaps inappropriately scaring some people too much, sometimes appropriately so. But but uh, this uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus uh, does have, you know, a number of odd and unusual uh, presentations associated with it, which, you know, a number of viruses do. I suppose to some extent from the volume of people that are being infected all at once, we're, we're seeing a lot of these oddball uh, scenarios. Uh, would you say that, that that's in large part what's going on here? Or do you think, is your opinion increasingly from what you're seeing in the literature that there's that it's more so about unique characteristics of, of this virus uh, that maybe we'll find that the rates of these um, uh, variety of manifestations are, uh, are somewhat unique to something about this SARS-CoV-2 virus? I think, like, as a the disclaimer, I want to emphasize that, you know, a lot of these um, articles and data is very preliminary. And and so far, there hasn't been established a cause-effect for some of these complications and manifestations. So we don't know for sure if they are caused by um, SARS-CoV-2 or just general inflammation and illness. But um, I do think that some of these are... I, I don't want to say common, but seen in other types of respiratory viruses, um, like I like we mentioned in the article with um, SARS um, one as well. So I, I do agree with what you said that since there's so many people being infected now, we're um, seeing a whole spectrum of things that we probably wouldn't see um, otherwise. And some of these um, things that you might not even test for a respiratory virus might not even be on your radar. And since we're very hypervigilant about it, everyone's getting tested. So um, we're attributing um, some of these things, especially like some of the neurologic ones, to to co-infection with the virus. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, a lot of us have seen some of these uh, conditions certainly um, before in, in rehabilitation, various forms of uh, encephalitis, encephalopathy, and um, ADM and other things that, you know, cannot, cannot be pinned down uh, exactly what caused it. We speculate some type of virus, um, but uh, given the, the rampant nature of this virus and that we're, we're testing for it, uh, uh, again, it, it makes us want to attribute it to this. It might, may well be, but, but certainly the propensity is there for other more common forms of, of coronavirus as, as, the, uh, as the literature emphasizes with MERS and um, uh, SARS one and so forth, as you say. 
Well, um, you know, one of the uh, the more prominent unusual conditions that came to light um, uh, initially and that, that people are still taking note of is this um, um, uh, decreased uh, smell and taste sense. And that is actually a, a neurological symptom and, um, you know, gives gives a clue to, to that aspect of it. Could you could you speak to a moment about what, what's known with regards to the, the neurological properties of the virus? Right. Yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting as well. Um, with theories that the virus could invade through the cribbage lung plate mm-hmm. um, and other types of respiratory viruses have been uh, found um, in neurons and such. So, like, again, it's we don't know for sure if, if this will happen, but um, other types of viruses have caused, like, meningitis and encephalitis, so it wouldn't be... I guess, unusual if, if uh, the COVID-19 virus does this uh, as well, because um, there's some theories about uh, transmission peripherally through uh, peripheral nerves going back mm-hmm. to the central nervous system. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was very interesting as well. And and, and that might have something to do with that loss, loss of sense of smell that, that a lot of people are reporting. And uh, plenty of patients in the acute phase of this illness or even having kind of more profound cognitive effects, um, uh, at least in case series, seeing various forms of uh, impaired consciousness and cognition and um, uh, even, you know, upper motor neuron uh, signs and uh, ataxias and and so forth. Certainly a lot of that, uh, one one imagines, will necessitate uh, uh, a bit of a a rehab course. how are uh, things going there at uh, UT Southwestern with these cases thus far? Can you speak to that or, those, or some of those patients on uh, your clinical service? Um, or uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you guys are seeing? Yes. So thankfully, we haven't been hit as hard here as um, some other places, unfortunately, like New York. Um, there's been a fairly amount of cases on the acute floor, but it seems they're recovering fairly well that most of them are not needing at least inpatient rehab. Um, the few that we have had, of course, a lot of um, the conditioning, seen a couple, you know, peripheral nerve injuries probably related to some like prone positioning. Um, the, the condition has been mostly clear by the time that they have come to us. Um, and we're also working on an outpatient program. So it's going to be interesting because we're going to be able to see a lot of people that were recovered enough that they could get home but did have some deficits and also follow them long term to see what how this disease is going to look like um let's say weeks or months later okay um getting back to your uh, paper in particular you go through all the different or uh, organ level and systemic uh, uh damage that that can be seen um you know everything ranging from uh eyes to the uh, digestive system and heart and so forth. What uh, what of that, rather than go, th- go through it all, I encourage people to read the paper, but um, could you speak for a bit about some of the aspects that you find more interesting? Yes. Well, I would say more, most of maybe the scary ones for the population would be uh, the incidence of stroke, mostly on the younger population. Um, and we mentioned in the article, at least by the time we were publishing, um, that wasn't had not been published itself yet. Mm-hmm. Um, a few Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, this was mostly in uh, in France. Um, 
the other things are, I think, more, you know, kind of common for critical illness, like elevated liver enzymes, um, some cardiac issues. Um, the digestive symptoms seem to be more prominent on uh, mild disease, and, and mm-hmm. I think it's interesting some people just get that without anything else, and yeah. that's why we thought it would be useful to know these things, especially um, when, I would say, more of like standalone kind of rehab places when you're considering to bring people in and you're probably not testing in everyone, but to be like vigilant about the other ways it can present so you can um, test people more appropriately and avoid co-infection within your, your unit or hospital. Right, yeah, and that's a very important aspect, I would say, to argue with this type of paper and just in general uh, keeping abreast of this evolving COVID literature to some extent, all of us, you know, to some extent outpatient, but certainly inpatient. Uh, the sooner you can pick up on, on potential COVID in your facility, the sooner you can uh, prevent its, uh, its spread. So uh, incredibly important to what we're, what we're doing. And you're largely inpatient as well? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, no doubt uh, this paper will, you know, probably deserve a, a, an update maybe in a, in a year or two, hopefully with some better news in it as well. <laughs> some of these things aren't actually related. Uh, right. And uh, uh, at any rate, uh, it, I think it's, a, a, as you state and as you titled it, you know, kind of a guide for the clinician. It seems to be uh, kind of a very practical review. You yourself don't have to spend three days, uh, like Dr. Lopez did, uh, pouring through all these papers. <laughs> Just check out her paper um, and get a nice quick uh, overview there. Um, well, I really do appreciate your taking the time to join us today on the RehabCast to talk about this paper. Well, thank you so much. Joining us now on the RehabCast today is Dr. Joe Giacino. Dr. Giacino is Director of Rehabilitation Neuropsychology at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston. He is consulting neuropsychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he is a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. Joe, thanks for taking the time to join us in the rehab cast today. Uh, thank you, Dr. Fox. Now, uh, you're joining us today to talk about this uh, position statement that ACRM has uh, officially endorsed and published in the archives concerning minimum competency recommendations for DOC programs. Uh, You and a lot of colleagues uh, worked on this document, I gather, for a number of years, and we kind of want to talk about the background of it and the meat of it here and, uh, you know, just kind of chat generally about uh, DOC care in in the United States as as much as we can for our time here this morning and uh, get people uh, kind of updated and refreshed on, on the latest. So um, let, let's kind of uh, start with uh, uh, kind of what, what this uh, document is. If you could give, give us kind of the original uh, concept and origin story, as, as it were. Sure. So first of all, thank you for the, uh, the invitation. Um, we're very happy to be able to uh, flesh out the, uh, th- these new recommendations. So the background is that the, um, the joint... Uh, special interest groups of the American Congress of Rehab Medicine and the TBI model systems, uh, and I should be specific, the Disorders of Consciousness special interest groups of those two organizations have a long history of both research and advocacy efforts on behalf of patients with disorders of consciousness. 
This is a population that has very complex care needs. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of misunderstanding, and frankly, a lot of error around assessment and clinic, clinical management of these individuals. And you know, much of this on you know misunderstanding cuts across clinicians, consumers, and payers. That is in part due to the fact there are no standards available to guide clinical management, um, and particularly none from a programmatic standpoint. And that, that, again, stems from the fact there's insufficient evidence to really drive standards. So the idea here was that the special interest group felt that there was a need to uh, at least improve the consistency of care using an evidence-informed approach, maybe not an evidence-based approach because the evidence is not sufficient to do that, but an evidence-informed pro- uh, informed pros- approach. So that's uh, really the motivation to, um, to, to go forward. And for folks who don't know, uh, ACRM has a uh, DOC special interest group that you can join, certainly, and uh, there's uh, Nidler has um, uh, its uh, own interest in uh, DOC, I gather, as well, and um, uh, obviously was involved in this process as well. Could you tell us about the, the Nidler uh, aspect of it? Sure. Um, so, again, the, the TBI model system program within Nidler has its own disorders of consciousness special interest group. And there are actually uh, many people who cut across both the ACRM and the Nidler disorders of consciousness special interest group. So a decision was made some years ago to combine those two groups because their agendas uh, were very similar. uh, And a lot of the research has been done uh, collectively with those individuals. So this, um, this, this effort was, or the goal essentially was to establish as you said, for minimum competency recommendations to provide uh, guidance on rehabilitation care for persons with disorders of consciousness. And we wanted to focus on essential staff, knowledge, skills, and services required for clinical management. And going through this document, it's it's kind of amazing just how how detailed uh, it is. It almost reads as if like this is a maybe maybe that's part of the plan. This is a document that uh, an organization like CARF could take and uh, you know utilize as a checklist to see if all the components are there. Yeah, so that's a great observation, and 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 it's comforting because that was the intent. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing here is offering a framework, if you will. For providers, payers, and consumers to evaluate, and I'll, and I'll even use the word audit, um, the infrastructure and the capacities needed to, to provide high-quality, evidence-informed care. So that checklist was a deliberate decision to, um, to assist a user, if you will, um, and that, would be, that might be the program itself. So, for example, I intend to do a self-audit of our own program against these new recommendations, but that could also be done by a payer who's trying to decide the best placement for uh, uh, somebody that they are um, responsible for care for, or a consumer who's trying to figure out the best place to take their family member. Now, one thing that's interesting is comparing this with the uh, guidelines uh, document now published a couple of uh, years ago uh, in the journal Neurology as well as archives of PM&R. Uh, that, of course, was weighing uh, evidence um, in regards to uh, uh, diagnosis and treatment aspects of DOC persons. And uh, while an important document, perhaps unsatisfying to the extent that, uh, as you mentioned just at the outset of this, you know, a lot of the ideal forms of medical evidence we would like to see for a lot of aspects of DOC care 
aren't there uh, in terms of certainly randomized controlled trials and so forth. And as a result, a lot of those recommendations have to be watered down to some extent uh, when looking at kind of evidence-based medicine approach to things that folks, you know, could do or you could think about doing or maybe or so-so. And and this uh, document, however, um, you know, these are actually all strong uh, recommendations that uh, – on the basis of, uh, you know, expert uh, opinion, quite a lot of it, uh, folks uh, uh, delivering and researching this care are saying this is, th these are all markers of quality that we should uh, strive to, you know, as a minimum, like a, this is a strong recommendation. Exactly. Uh, these are evidence-informed recommendations, not evidence-based, so they're uh, less systematic and, and, and less um, uh, rule-based, if you will. So when you do evidence-based guidelines, there are rules that are established at the front end, uh, including what types of studies can be considered in, in coming up with the recommendations. So because we, did, we knew that there were not gonna be, there was not gonna be evidence at this level for programs, the approach we took was to rely on best practices, the existing evidence, even if it wasn't high-class evidence, and then we used a consensus process. And so specifically, it was a modified Delphi process, which uh, builds consensus among um, experts. So those three um, approaches, if you will, were sort of combined to come up with the final set of, uh, of recommendations. And just to give folks kind of a preview of how detailed this document is, and you really just ha do have to go read it, and certainly anyone delivering any level of uh, DOC care needs to go uh, check it out, um, But uh, and we can't go through each of these in the course of this uh, podcast interview, but uh, it even goes to the level of discussing the fact that uh, a discharge summary from uh, a DOC program should have these certain elements uh, with regards to understanding um, uh, the the level of care that's going to be necessary post-discharge and the fact that um, uh, you need to have anticipated kind of what, uh, how the comorbid medical conditions will be involved, what, you know, necessary uh, rehab interventions are going to be recommended after your, your program, uh, lab follow-ups, you know, wound care uh, uh, equipment needs and so forth. But uh, uh, kind of giving a plan to that uh, next lower level of care, you know, whether it's certainly uh, home or another facility or uh, so forth. So, um, and it's kind of discussing to some extent what not only what key team members need to be involved, but, but what they need to be doing and anticipating. There's quite a lot here with regards to kind of those key components of quality DOC medical care in terms of that, you know, an, an imaging uh, review has been done to anticipate for any common uh, subsequent pathology you might uh, expect, like, you know, hydrocephalus and so on, or concerning fluid collections and that type of thing. Um, if the appropriate imaging has not been done, then, then to do it, you know, a close medication review uh, and, that, and that type of thing. So it's just kind of nice to see um, all those types of things uh, uh, written down uh, in a way that, that folks can uh, uh, reflect just to make sure, you know, is that something that we're doing consistently and have ingrained in our program and so forth so that, um, you know, we're consistently delivering quality care to this complicated population. Right. I, I think uh, that's a good example of where we could be more specific because that uh, the recommendation in terms of the discharge planning was based on best practices. So, you know, we were able to uh, lay out more detail there in terms of the recommendations. But, you know, that's that's juxtaposed against the treatment guidelines, for example, uh, or even the approach to clinical assessment where we could not be pr uh, proscriptive. Mm -hmm. um, 
so what those recommendations um, do is to sort of provide a high level approach. So, you know, kind of what, what, what do you have to be thinking about when you're deciding how to approach assessment of a patient with a disturbance in consciousness or treatment, or for that matter, sitting down with a family to discuss prognosis. So we don't say here are the key prognostic indicators and you know, this is what you should be talking about. We talk about how to approach prognostic counseling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, everybody in rehab medicine talks about how it's such a um, you know unique uh, crossover field uh, and so forth. And I, I feel like, I mean, uh, I don't think it's any secret to anyone uh, listening to this podcast who's heard prior episodes. You know, I'm in, in brain injury and see a fair number of, of DOC cases. It, I, it's reinforced to me, perhaps from my insular point of view, that this is the unique of the unique. You know, rehab is uh, is unique. You have to consider many social and societal factors and so forth and problem solve regardless of the diagnosis and every, you know, family unit is uh, approaching it differently. And then DOC seems to be um, kind of the, the epitome um, of that uh, kind of pinnacle of rehab care to me. Uh, <laughs> it's just my perspective, you know, looking at it, but uh, where we see everything uh, and super high relief with regards to how variable things can be almost to, to the extent of, you know, similar levels of, uh, of impairment and, and so forth or similar levels of, you know, structural brain injury and so forth and things playing out so differently from certainly clinically to socially to systems of care and so forth. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's true. There's, and that was another driver for, you know, why we did this paper. And it is, it is a position statement. Uh, it, the marked variability that, um, you know, one sees when looking around uh, the country in terms of how people are approaching care is probably not a good thing in, in the long run. So the hope is that people will adhere more closely to these recommendations, improve the consistency, make things more systematic. And that will also assist with, um, with research because if we, you know, we, we can – if we have some common denominators in the way we approach things, then we can actually look at outcomes in a, a cleaner manner. Mm -hmm. Well, with regards to this particular field of uh, rehab, uh, you in particular have, uh, I would I would imagine, a very unique perspective, perhaps being uh, more aware than most of the activities surrounding uh, DOC programming in the country and the world. I'm sure you're consulted uh, on these matters. And um, I'm curious if you could give us a window into what your view has been of kind of uh, programmatic activity, um, kind of changes in systems of, of care, um, certainly focusing the United States, but maybe if you know elsewhere over the past couple of years with, with all these, you know, guideline documents coming out in a very high profile way, uh, do you feel like activity is picking up and more of this, this care is being delivered uh, to, to a good extent, not enough extent? What, what's your overall impression? So that's a great question. Uh, one I've given a lot of thought to in the two years since the uh, the DOC evidence-based practice guidelines came out, um, we just actually submitted a grant that addresses your question specifically. What we know is that practice guidelines are wonderful. They are advocated by federal agencies, by the Institute of Medicine, but they are rarely uh, adopted and used. So it is not enough to simply publish the recommendations. One has to then have a plan for implementation that is sustainable over time. Otherwise people, you know, then maybe they read the paper and they, um, you know, put into practice some of these things for a while and then it sort of just fades back into what works best for me. So what our next step is here, uh, you know, is figuring out how to 
make this a more translatable, sustainable uh, effort. In terms of what's happening uh, globally, what uh, what's interesting is that coincidentally, the Europeans also just published um, uh, an excellent document as well on disorders of consciousness. In so there are European guidelines, and there's a lot of crossover, but some differences, not surprisingly. So I think there's lots of activity now in attempting to um, make make things more systematic, but I don't think we're at a point yet where we can say that, you know, there's been any discernible difference. That's going to take some time and, uh, you know, a thoughtful approach to how we're going to, uh, even evaluate that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I have found, and, uh, you know, again, I mentioned, I, I do treat this patient population, my, in my own clinical practice, uh, some of these documents quite useful and, uh, speaking with insurers and, uh, and so forth, though still not seeing a lot of fundamental change uh, there. This uh, uh, practice document, of course, talks about the challenges of systems of, of care and so forth and, uh, you know, making sure that folks get the access to the to the care that they need in an environment or follow-up plan to uh, continue to um, work on reemergence of consciousness, certainly detecting that as soon as possible. Um, with regards to uh, the payer uh, aspect of, of things, um, have you seen any improvement there or, or are things fairly static? Yeah, so uh, I, I think this, is, this remains to be seen also, but I, what, I'm, what I'm really optimistic about now is that we have tools that we did not have before to, um, to employ when we're having conversations with payers. So you know, we now have the state of the science guidelines, and we now have this set of programmatic recommendations that represent what the field thinks. And these are consensus based, both of these documents. So we can push back when we are um, hearing um, what we don't believe to be um, uh, an evidence based explanation for why somebody isn't being authorized for either continuation of care or even admission for care. You know, we know that about 20% of people with moderate to severe traumatic brain injury ever see an inpatient rehabilitation setting. So that means 80% of this population, eight out of 10 people are going to other uh, levels of care or right back home very early. So the burden of care shifts to non-specialized practitioners and families very, very quickly. And I think that that needs to change the guidelines from 2018 and, and these program recommendations, I think, will help us make those arguments because they are either evidence-based or evidence-informed. So we have these tools now. Uh, our toolboxes, uh, you know, got some additional uh, materials in it that we can use. And I think that's exactly what we need to do now is mm -hmm. start to really rely on these documents um, so we can be uh, we, we can provide a justification when we say when we're making an argument for admission for somebody or to uh, continue care because we believe we can get more benefit. Well, you're certainly uh, uh, preaching to the choir there, and I'm sure quite a lot of folks uh, listening to this segment of the podcast uh, will will agree. Of course, it's all pretty much a rehab professional audience that's listening to this podcast, and I expect some uh, family uh, members uh, as well. Um, well, uh, so this, uh, I think, uh, again, uh, Incredibly important document for anyone who does this type of work uh, uh, professionally, very useful for both uh, administrators and uh, clinicians and all these other interested uh, parties. Uh, 
And when I say checklist, it, it actually does include literally an audit uh, checklist um, uh, of each of these recommendations and, uh, and who is doing what uh, so that folks can, uh, can go through and, and double check that they really have all the pieces of the puzzle there. And then um, uh, it is, of course, you know, a, a rapidly evolving field and one that does require a lot of creativity with regards to uh, any patient, and that's, that's reflected in the fact that it is not so, so prescriptive with regards to uh, the necessary treatment course for any key case, though I certainly do expect we'll, we'll see more uh, uh, documents in that regard that are more specific as to uh, what elements uh, uh, also mark high-quality care um, with certain types of clinical problems that we see in DOC. Though there is uh, clearly some, some of that here with things that, that should be anticipated with regards to um, uh, some common brain injury complications and so forth. Um, Joe, what, uh, uh, what is this, uh, uh, the, the group working on next uh, in this direction? Well, the, the, the Disorders of Consciousness Special Interest Group has a long slate of activities. It would take us too long, literally just to name the number of yeah. things, but I will highlight a few. So um, dissemination and translation is a big part of what that group does. So as I was saying before, you know, we're on the, in the process of, uh, of either um, – uh, well, basically initiating the dissemination plan that's been laid out um, for both the DOC guidelines and now just beginning the discussion about the dissemination plan for the minimum competency recommendations. So there are a lot of people working on different types of venues to um, to unfold these things. Um, you know, beyond that, um, continuing the research, obviously, um, and that is being done in the context of the TBI model systems program. Um, and then uh, separate projects in the ACRM. I would encourage people who are listening to the podcast who are interested in this area to uh, become involved with the, with the special interest group. You can do that by uh, simply going to the ACRM website at acrm.org and then just look up this, uh, the Disorders of Consciousness uh, or Brain Injury Special Interest Group because um, we certainly need people to help out. There's a lot of work to be done. Excellent point. Well, uh, Joe, again, I, wanna, I know you're uh, a busy man, uh, and uh, I really do appreciate your time this morning joining us on the, the rehab cast today. Uh, folks, definitely check out these minimum comp- competency recommendations in uh, DOC. A lot of work was uh, put into this document. It should be highly beneficial to this uh, segment of the rehabilitation population. Again, thank you, Joe. And thank you for appreciate the opportunity. And that'll do it for this June 2020 edition of the RehabCast. We do appreciate your keeping this show plugged into your podcast player of choice during our viral interlude. Please share the podcast with colleagues. 